I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 2 Timothy 2. Looking at verses 14 through 18, after having taken a week off last week, title of the sermon, A War of Words. Over the past several weeks, we have contemplated the spiritual battle unto which we are called to wage a war against that spiritual foe. First, as we saw at the beginning of 2 Timothy 2, Paul commanded Timothy to be strong in God's grace. And we were able to link this textually to that verse that we're memorizing this month in Ephesians chapter 6, to be strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. And then second, we saw another command to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ from verse 3 of 2 Timothy 2. This exhortation coming with a definitive call as those who fight a spiritual battle not to become entangled with the philosophies and the priorities which serve only at best to distract us from the battle at hand to be entangled with this world. And also, just importantly, these things not only distract us from the things at hand, but they strip from us the rewards that come to an effective soldier of Jesus Christ. We then considered last time we were together in 2 Timothy the tremendous power that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ unto effective ministry. Knowing that God is faithful, that he will honor those who honor him and reward those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, that he will also be faithful because he cannot deny himself to withhold those rewards from those who, for whatever reason, in the soldierly terms and military terms, go AWOL from the spiritual battle unto which you have been called. And this week, Paul is going to continue speaking to Timothy about this spiritual battle. I've exhorted you throughout the several messages that we've had in this chapter already, and I do so again. Remember who Paul is speaking to here. Paul is speaking to a pastor. He is giving a perspective, a pastoral perspective as he gives these instructions. Timothy is called as a full-time minister of the Lord. He faces spiritual battles and unique spiritual battles. And yet we also have recognized throughout the course of this study that Paul is not simply instructing Timothy, is he? He is, in fact, instructing Timothy in regard to many things which Timothy would need to tell the church. And one of the things which was very important to Paul as it related to Timothy, but also as it relates to you, particularly in this age, is the, the call today to be careful over, to be careful with our study, to be careful how we study, to be careful with words, to be careful with semantics, which is the meaning of words, to be careful that we don't nitpick, overdefine, redefine, concepts and contexts within the Word of God. The danger of which we speak today is, a, as a, if I could describe it, it's a danger of becoming entangled in false study. It's not enough just that we read and study the Word of God. We need to do it properly. We need to study, not just for the sake of study, but study to show ourselves approved unto God. And so the danger of becoming entangled in false study, 
that in the name of Jesus Christ, in the form of studying the Bible and the things that surrounding it, the things of God, we can become entangled, distracted, and even completely diverted from God's truths and God's purposes in this world. And it's this of which we speak today. We've reviewed the previous context. Let's dig in in verse 14. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, 14, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. We come to a third command. I already gave you those first two commands within the scriptures. First, be, verse one, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we mentioned at the time that this is actually be made strong, right? Based upon the language there. And then the second one was in verse three, therefore, thou therefore endure hardness. That's the second command within the scriptures. And remember, we're not just pulling this out of nowhere. We recognize that if, we were to, uh, if, if you were to go back to the Greek and you were to see how those were parsed, they would both be in what's called the imperative mood, which means that this is a volitional command that is being given. And we see a third command here in the text. Of these things, put them in remembrance. Paul telling Timothy to charge the church on these things. What things? Well, the power of the gospel, the faithfulness of God, the rewards of those who fight the spiritual battle, the rewards of those who, who deny, who refuse, who reject the temptation to become entangled with the things of this world, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And all of this in order that we may wage a certain type of spiritual warfare, of which Paul will speak in the verses that we study today calling the church to avoid the temptation, not just of getting distracted by the entanglements of this world, but by getting distracted by the philosophy of this world and imposing the philosophy of this world into the text of Scripture. And Paul calls Timothy to witness these things to the church before the Lord. It's a somewhat common phrase in the New Testament, the idea of charging someone before the Lord. And the idea is akin to us saying something to the effect of, as God is my witness, that Timothy is exhorted to charge them of these things and to make it clear to them that they know now and that they're accountable. There are times when my children do something which uh, I would deem to be wrong. And so I go through the process of disciplining them in whatever process it might be. And then as I'm going through the process of talking with them uh, in, in the intention of chastening them and disciplining them, it becomes apparent to me at some point that um, I'm not entirely confident whether or not I've ever actually instructed them in this topic. And when that happens, when I begin to uh, suspect that, you know, maybe I've actually never told you not to do that. Maybe I've never given you clear instruction as to what I expect in this scenario. Well, now the, the chastening changes a little bit, right? Now the discipline changes a little bit. Now my job is to make sure that, that they know clearly what my expectations are so that we can move forward from this point. So I tell them, whether or not I've ever told you this before, I'm telling you now, from this moment on, you're accountable to these things. And that's kind of the idea here. When, when Paul charges Timothy to tell these things to the church before the Lord, the idea is that he is going to charge them, he's going to instruct them in clarity to the extent that they now know full well what is expected of them of the Lord, and thus they are accountable to the Lord for these things. So they're accountable. And the thing here that we see that, that 
Paul is calling Timothy to charge them with is that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. The warning here is about the church not fighting over words. Now, when you initially think of that, the, the, the first thing that I think of is um, uh, don't get into these debates in the church about uh, theology and such, but that's not really the, the, the context here. And it certainly doesn't mean that you don't contend for the truth against error, that we don't contend against false teachers over their words. That's not what's being talked about here. But rather, the idea is that you don't fight the words. Don't contend against the text itself. Don't overanalyze the text. Don't spend your time reading between the lines. Don't spend your time digging uh, beyond the, that which is clear to try to find that which is muddy. Uh, making what is supposed to be simple, complex through an intellectual exercise. And Paul is going to give an example in verse 18 regarding two men named Hymenaeus and Philetus. And these men were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. The resurrection was already passed. And in doing so, Paul says, they overthrew the faith of many, of some, excuse me. Now, as Paul contends uh, uh, about this particular error, it's an idea, uh, a common heresy within the early church, one which persists today. It laid the foundation for the church's great battle in the next generation with a philosophy called Gnosticism, which we'll come back to in a few moments. The idea behind this heresy was a perversion of Paul's teaching in the epistles that we were already risen with Christ, right? So Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. Uh, excuse me. Uh, baptism and death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in, new, we also should walk in newness of life. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Reiterated in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul said, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So in these verses, when taken in context, we find Paul is speaking to the reality of our freedom from sin and a new life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What we would consider to be a judicial or a spiritual resurrection into a judicial association with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That at the moment of salvation, the believer has died to sin through a divine judicial association with Jesus' death, and he has thus risen to newness of life through a divine judicial association with Jesus' resurrection. He is not teaching here, in context, that the new birth is the only resurrection that mankind will experience, or that at the new birth we receive resurrected bodies or anything of the sort. Paul is by no means teaching that there is not a physical resurrection in the future. And we know this, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends a great deal of time walking through the reality of a bodily resurrection, saying, in fact, that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But Jesus is risen from the dead, and so too will we, that our bodies, these vile bodies, these bodies of, of flesh will, will, will give way to new, eternal, resurrected bodies. And yet, 
what was happening even in the early church is there were these men, such as Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had said the resurrection is already past. We've already experienced the resurrection. The resurrection is something which is already done and gone. And Paul says, this is wrong. This is them striving about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. This is them taking a text, bringing it beyond its natural implications, bringing it outside of its context, and making it say something that it doesn't say. And Paul exhorts Timothy to warn the church against doing this to the text. And we see this all the time in, the in, in Christianity, don't we? You go up to the Catholic or the Reformed theologian and you ask them, what does it mean when God says Israel in the Old Testament? And they'll tell you it means the church. They'll tell you it means the elect. This is a semantic argument that assumes that God was not saying what he was saying. Spiritualizing something that he presented as literal. Go up to the Catholic or the Lutheran, mainline evangelical, uh, many fundamentalists even, and ask them what the Bible means when it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And they'll tell you it means keep the sacraments or be in church or repent of your sins or make Jesus the Lord of your life. And this is a semantic argument that assumes that Jesus was not being clear. Spiritualizing something presented is literal. But there's another way that this danger bears itself out in the church that strikes a little bit closer to home. I said it many, I've said it many times, but it bears repeating. Church, there's plenty for us to worry about on the lines of the Bible without wasting our time reading between the lines. I've not even come close to aligning with all of the things on the lines of the Bible. So I need to be careful when I spend time going beyond what's on the lines of the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean those various elements of spiritual inference aren't true. But if God has given us all things needed for life and godliness in this book, then I need to be careful how much time I spend going beyond this book, chasing down inferences from this book, rather than doing what the lines tell me to do. And a classic example of this, of course, is end times theology, right? Now, I spent better than a year on, on, uh, going through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prophecy is extremely important, and we know that to be true. But as we learned in our time walking through that book in the revelation of Jesus Christ, there are a lot of things the Bible's not clear about as it relates to the end times, aren't there? And the point of future prophecy, as we learn from that study, the point of it is not that God wanted to tell us the future. The point of the revelation of Jesus Christ is to reveal Jesus Christ. It's not to tell us the future. It's to teach us of the God who holds the future. It's to teach us of the character of our Savior. It's to tell us that He's coming again. It's to show us what that coming is going to look like. Not to tell us times and dates and, and, and the nitty-gritty, but to tell us what it's going to look like so that we can align ourselves with Him, so that we can get ourselves on His side, so that we can understand that He is both the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world and the Lion of the tribe of Judah.
The entire point of the revelation is to teach us of Christ, of himself, and to compel us to align ourselves, to watch and, and to pray. And yet, what the church has done is we have taken that and we have blossomed end times theology into entire ministries that spend all of their time speculating on things that the Bible has not seen fit to tell us. To spend countless hours poring over the text for little hints of what will happen. Connecting dots all over the place. Parsing words to the nth degree. Looking for the key which will unlock all the mysteries. And even in very imbalanced cases, attempting to define, identify ages and dates and times and institutions as definitive sources of the evils that will come. Now this is beyond common in the church. And Timothy is called here to exhort the church not to strive about words to the extent that they lose their functional purpose, but to subvert the hearers. And I'm gonna to stick to prophecy for a moment to illustrate this point. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on prophecy, it's just one that I think we can all relate to. Apart from an intellectual exercise, apart from giving somebody something interesting and exciting to think about, what is the functional purpose of having to identify all of the institutions or people groups that, that might be working in the time of the revelation of Jesus Christ? It is functionally interesting to try to decide what institution, through what institution will the Antichrist come? Who will he be? What is the identity of Babylon? Who is the whore that rides the beast? Interesting stuff. Has its place. But what functional benefit have the hundreds of hours and thousands of pages written on the topic been to the church? How many people will be strengthened in their faith functionally by digging into the nitty-gritty of these, these thoughts and these times and these issues? And then let's reverse the question. How many people have been subverted in their faith functionally by getting too deep into those weeds? Have you ever known somebody? Maybe it's not prophecy. Maybe it's some other issue where they got hung up on something and then it started to... You could just see them. It's like they're being dragged in by an undertow. And they're getting further and further away from the things that matter in the church. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord thy God. As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. And they've started getting more fringe. Putting all of their time into those things which don't profit anymore. But to subvert them from, the, from, from the, the goal, from the focus, right? Now, as Christians, we've been we've been on quite a journey historically, right? We are, by nature, humans, and so humans are naturally pendulum swingers, as, as I often say. We go from one extreme to the other, and this is how humans roll, right? I see something, and I, I, I commit myself to it, and then uh, it becomes out of balance, and the next generation sees it's out of balance and they go boom over to the other end of the spectrum. And now they're way out of balance on this end. And then we end up pendulum swinging our way through Christian history. And so these things are, are understandable from a human perspective, but the, the warning here 
is that we don't get out of balance. And we've seen it. I think prophecy is a good example of this, but we've seen it. You've seen it. You've seen it when someone's gotten caught up in something that has caused them to go well beyond what the text of the scripture says into implications and into uh, surmisings and into, um, into the weeds that are, have no profit in their spiritual life. Have you known Christians who have been learning, who have been growing, then they catch hold of some teaching and it just subverts them? And they begin to think that they have the key that very few others have. And they can unlock all the mysteries through it. And you've noticed that they quickly become ineffective in this time and in this place because they're so busy now uh, chasing down, you know, ch chasing rabbits through rabbit holes. And they stop sharing the gospel and instead they begin sharing their insights. They begin to evangelize their way of thinking rather than God's way of thinking. And they start to divide Christians or divide the world not by belief and unbelief anymore, but they start to divide the world by those who understand their perspective and those who don't. Have you seen this before? And then they become judgmental. And they see themselves as unique in the remnant of the church. And what's really happened is they've been subverted because they have striven, they've strove, they've fought, they have, they have striven with words to no profit. So pastor, you're saying don't study, right? No, no, I'm not saying that. Don't take that from me this morning. But study is only as good as the objective of that study and as good as its results. Our study will always deal with deep mysteries in that it's dealing with the spiritual. But I don't study to find new. I don't study to find the fantastic. I study to find truth. The spirit of Gnosticism is the spirit that is looking for knowledge that nobody else understands. The word Gnosticism, it's an ancient heresy based upon the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. It's a broad heresy in which its followers believed that they could attain unto some level of secret knowledge not revealed to common people, special knowledge acquired only by a group of enlightened elites. And it's a deeply alluring heresy. And it's found in any number of applications. It can be found, it can become a natural extension even of sound doctrine if you allow that sound doctrine to become out of balance and you begin striving about words to no profit but to the subverting of the hearers. It's deeply alluring because it appeals to multiple elements of our flesh. It appeals to our pride in that we know something that others don't know. And maybe even we might believe we know something others can't know. You know, it's the funny thing about the gospel. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, the fact that um, not many noble, not many honorable, not many mighty are called because God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the mighty and the base things of this world to confound them which are noble, right? And we talked about that a little bit this morning. But you know what's interesting about that? Is that the world doesn't reject the gospel because it's hidden from them. As a matter of fact, the Bible, Jesus says, if, if if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The gospel is not hidden. 
The gospel is not secret knowledge. The gospel is not revealed only to a few. The gospel is simple. The gospel may be received by any man. And the gospel uh, demands the, the, the smallest kernel of faith, right? It, it, it has a very, very low bar of entry. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We are not a group of elites in here that have found something that other people can't find. We're not the chosen few who have been given something that, that, that others have been rejected from. We have simply responded by faith to the, to, to the call that is, is, is given to every man. Jesus said, when the comforter comes, John 16, which is the Holy Ghost, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He's doing that. And by grace, you humbled yourself before it. And God opened up his word to you through his spirit. So it appeals to our pride. It also appeals to our curiosity, right? This idea of secret knowledge. Because it encourages us to dig deep, to make unique and creative connections between passages of Scripture, which would seem to have little relationship otherwise. It allows us to use our intellectual prowess and our creativity. And that there's an allurement in that. And finally, it appeals to our self-righteousness. Because it enables us to feel spiritual while also being able to ignore our own sin. See, because I can just interpret emphasis where I want to, and I can emphasize the things that I do well, and I can totally ignore the things that I, I struggle with. I can devote my time to reading and studying the Bible without ever in a, <laughs> ever in a moment feeling any conviction. Why? Because I'm, the Bible's not judging me anymore when I'm a Gnostic. I'm judging the Bible. I'm reading the Bible to determine what it says. I'm not reading the Bible to have God tell me what it says. And now I judge the word. The word doesn't judge me. And at, at, at that point that I judge the word of God, the word of God will become of none effect to me because I judge it, which means I determine what it says for me. I've been striving about words to the subverting of the hearers. The point of my study at that point is no longer to grow closer to Christ, but rather to find new and interesting connections, to find things, to judge things, to make truth. So in verse 14, Paul warns Timothy, charge them that they don't strive, that they don't fight over words, that they don't contend over words, that they don't nitpick what is clear, that they don't read between the lines, to the subverting of the hearers. Verse 15, we have a fourth command. And it's a contrastive command. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study of the Bible is a means unto an end. Remember back in verse 4 of 2 Timothy three, uh, chapter 2, Paul said, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. A soldier remains fit. A soldier doesn't get distracted. A soldier trains in order to accomplish definitive goals. That's what we said in verse four, right? 
that I don't get entangled with this world because the world is going to subvert my ability to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The world is not going to help me be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to impose the world upon my thinking because it's going to cause me to be a less capable soldier. Now again, by the world, we mean the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, not cars and houses and stuff, right? Now imagine that that soldier, that soldier is training hard because no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. And he is training hard and he's not getting distracted to accomplish the purpose. And then imagine that that soldier is assigned to a unit and they begin a deep and thorough study and training regarding fighting on the moon. And at first that soldier gets excited and he says, okay, this is interesting. Are we going to colonize the moon? And his unit commander says, no, 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 we're not going to colonize the moon. It's just a natural extension of practical soldiers training, right? We're going to spend some of our time thinking about what it might be like to fight on the moon. Well, and that might be interesting and that might be fun and that might be an interesting intellectual exercise, but here's the problem. When it's time to go fight a battle in the desert or in the forests or in the mountains, places where soldiers might actually fight battles, it's not going to help them if they spent half of their training learning how to fight on the moon. It is an impractical exercise that might be a natural extension of what it means to be a soldier, but it's still not profitable, right? It's not, pro no matter how natural it might be as an extension of what we actually have to do as soldiers, it's not profitable because it's all theoretical. Have you ever seen that in, your, in the Christian life or have you ever been there? Where all of a sudden you're having a discussion and the next thing you know, you're in a place that's just not profitable anymore. It's like, this is never going to happen. This is not profitable. This is well beyond any sort of value to me. We need it. Let's get back. Let's, let's get refocused here, right? It might be a fun intellectual exercise, but it's useless. It is beyond useless. It's detrimental because the time that I spent training for, uh, for how to fight on the moon could have been used training for how to actually do something that I'll do, right? Study of the word of God is not an end unto itself. It is a functional means unto an end. We study the Bible not to study the Bible. We study the Bible to be found approved of God. That's why we study. Study to show thyself approved unto God, right? A diligent laborer is what that word approved means. Study to be prepared for the battle that you face. Now, Let's go back to my end times example. I know I'm really picking on the end times theology today. This doesn't mean I ignore prophecy. It doesn't mean I ignore the prophetic parts of the Bible. Well, you know, prophecy can get way out of balance. So just skip Isaiah, just skip Ezekiel, just skip Daniel, just skip Revelation. No, we're not going to do that, right? That would be, that'd be foolish. This doesn't mean I fail to understand what the Bible says. But it does mean that I study the Bible to be a prepared soldier, not a knowledgeable soldier. I don't study to get knowledge. I study to become a better soldier. I study so that I can become more useful in the battle over truth. I study so that I can be more useful reaching the souls of men. And if at once I find myself being drawn away from the battle, I'm missing the point of study. Let's just give some practical context to this danger. I'm going to step on some toes here. If you can do a better job explaining what you believe in the Bible 
about the order of events that are to come. Or if you can do a better job explaining from the Bible what you think the society of the, pre, of the pre-diluvian, pre-flood days of Noah looked like. Or if you think you can do a better job, or if you can do a better job explaining what you believe about the delicate balance between the free will of God and the sovereignty of man, if you can do a better job explaining those things than you can do explaining the gospel to an unbeliever, you've probably been misappropriating your study. I'm not saying it's not good for you to be able to articulate the balance between the free will of of man and the sovereignty of God. I hope I said that right. Did I say the free will of God and the sovereignty of man? Yeah, it just ticked in my mind that I said it differently the first time. The free will of man and the sovereignty of God. That's what I meant. That's not a bad thing to be able to articulate. It's not a bad thing to have a general timeline of events as it relates to the end times. It's not a bad thing to be able to consistently articulate what a pre-diluvian world may have looked like. But if you've done that to the, at the expense of knowing and articulating the gospel, then you might be out of balance in your study. Because the purpose of my study is not to theorize about interesting topics surrounding God's word. The purpose of my study is to show myself approved unto God. The purpose of my study is to be equipped. The purpose of training is to ready yourself to be a soldier, which means I don't spend my time wrongly dividing the word of God. I don't spend my time on efforts which are only intellectually profitable. If I have extra time, I can go there. And that's a wonderful thing to do with my extra time. Rather than wasting my time on something else, I can start to work into some of these more unique elements of the word of God. But this can't be the functional purpose of my study. The functional purpose of my study is to better, be better equipped to fight the spiritual battles that rage on a daily basis, to call people out of darkness and into the light, to live in a manner that is consistent with righteousness, to be, as the text says, a workman that needeth not be, to be ashamed. Not deceitful workers, as Paul warned about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Not evil workers, as Paul warned about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, but useful workers to the Lord, approved, diligent, usable, Does your Bible study make you more usable to the Lord? Or does it just feed your ego? Or does it just feed your curiosity? Or does it, maybe worst case scenario, just feed your judgmentalism? Do you go into the Bible to look for all the ways you're better than others? All the ways you're getting it right? Or do you look into the perfect law of liberty? Not being a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. James says that man will be blessed in his deed. Don't get distracted over a war of words, believer. Paul warns about what happens when we get distracted in verses 15, 16, uh, excuse me, 16 through 18. Paul says, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase into more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Now, we've already addressed this error, the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus. But notice that the warning is not simply against wasting time in study, misappropriating resources in study. 
The warning is that the striving about words can quickly devolve into carnal agendas that will end up allowing people in the name of God to justify their own sinfulness. It goes beyond waste and it becomes profane. Notice he uses the word profane, not just vain, not just empty, but profane and vain. And notice he says that it has increased in these men unto ungodliness. It's not just that they've decided the resurrection is already past. It's not just that there's a theological difference between this guy and Paul. It's that Hymenaeus and Philetus went down a path that, that took them into ungodliness, profanity with vanity. It led them into a place where now they were justifying ungodliness in the name of their God. Paul says their words eat like a canker. It's an ulcer. It's an open wound that eats the flesh around it and spreads over time like cancer. The wound which consumes flesh as it spreads across the skin, so too is false doctrine. It may start with intellectual curiosity. It may start with me just striving about words to no profit, and it's profitless. But at what point does vanity become profanity and ungodliness? Their words were functional only to increase ungodliness and to overthrow the faith of those who were unskilled in the word. Reminding us once again that the purpose of study is not to know but to be approved before God and to rightly divide the word of truth. Now that's where we're going to finish our exposition for today. We'll pick up in verse 19 next week and continue along in the text. But before we finish... I'd like to set out some of the ways that we can strive about words to no profit. Help us organize in our minds some of the places where this danger might come from in order that we can appropriate our time profitably. And then we'll talk about some of the, the, the dangerous results of such. Some of the subversive Christian study distractions that we can experience. And the first one is getting spiritual tunnel vision. The spiritual tunnel vision is when you take any doctrine and you apply it so much emphasis to it that it becomes out of balance. No matter how important or unimportant a teaching of the Bible is, this can happen. It can happen even to the very gospel itself, where I can become so consumed with a gospel focus that, say, I fail to disciple. I, I spend all of my time focused exclusively on sharing the gospel and then when I lead someone to the Lord, then I just leave them to the wolves. Or conversely, I become so consumed with discipleship that I completely ignore the call to evangelize. It can happen, of course, in end times theology, as we've talked about, where ministries devoted entirely to the end times lose sight of today because they're so busy looking at tomorrow. It can happen with helps ministries where a person gets so focused upon meeting the needs of the body that they lose sight of meeting the needs of the soul. And our study is intended to bring us to this result that we are approved unto God. Workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth into a balanced Christianity, study to be usable. And let me just give two thoughts on this before we continue. The, if we take God's word the way he has given it, it will produce balance. 
We don't bear the burden of balancing God's word. We bear the burden of not falling out of balance in our focus. In other words, if I major on what the Bible majors on and I minor, this is, this is the next point, but I minor on what the Bible minors on, I'm probably going to be okay. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The second thought, it is true that people have different gifts and that these gifts compel their focus, is it not? A man given the gift of evangelism will naturally be more focused himself on evangelizing. And this is, this is absolutely good and right and true, and it is what it is because he has been gifted in that area. He should use his gifts to the glory of God. But the evangelist, knowing that he is an evangelist, knowing the gift that God has given to him, knowing the emphasis that God has given to him, should at the very least partner with disciples so that when he leads people to the Lord, he has a direction to point them. Recognizing the importance of discipleship following evangelism, and that's not his gift, and that's not his calling, and that's not going to be his emphasis, but he does need to yield those people to someone who has it. Same with the, discipleship, the discipler. Discipler is not an evangelist. He might do some evangelism, as we all would do, but his gift is discipleship. Okay, partner with evangelists. Make yourself known to evangelists so that when that evangelist leads someone to the Lord, they can point them to you at that time. And this is what's called the church, right? One body made up of many members. And the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. And the eye cannot say to the ear, you're not necessary. And the nose cannot say to the knee, get out of here because we're all needed. And if the eye tries to be the knee, your body's going to have a bad day. And if the foot tries to be the hand, you're going to have a hard time. But when they work together, when they recognize each other's gifts and abilities, and they focus in on what they do well, not to the exclusion of what other people are gifted to do, we find this thing called balance, right? And I can take one step in front of another. And this is not just my feet, is it? This is my feet. This is my ankles. This is my knees. This is my ears. My ears are providing the balance that is allowing my body to function in this way. And of course, it's all going through my central nervous system to make sure it's all happening as it's supposed to happen. My body is working together in unity. This is the church. So we each have our own gifts, and that's wonderful. The danger is when we stop seeing the need for other people's gifts, <laughs> or we stop seeing the need for other doctrinal truths because a, a certain doctrinal truth has become so important to me. So be careful about spiritual tunnel vision. Number two, be careful about majoring on the minors. We major on the minors when we take things that are relatively minimal or obscure in the Word of God and we make them focal points of our study and our teaching and our ministry. The idea that always comes to mind, I don't know why it always comes to mind um, when I think of this, it's not, it's not the best practical example, but the idea that always comes to mind, do you all remember that book, The Prayer of Jabez? It's a, it was a book that was pretty big in mainstream evangelicalism for a while. And I, I saw it at the, the thrift store one time and, and, and was looking through it, and I marveled. The prayer of Jabez is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10. It's a statement made in passing to reflect upon the honor of a man named Jabez above his brothers. From this very, very short prayer, which effectively says, Lord, bless me, <laughs> came in not just a book, but an entire curriculum. 
an entire study series, primarily seeker-sensitive material, health and wealth type stuff, meant to help people tap into God's blessings. This is a classic example of taking a very small bit of scripture and turning it into something huge, something well beyond its scope. And we can do this, can't we? We can do this with standards. Creating an entire ministry focused upon the results of a person's life rather than on the causes. In other words, standards are a natural result of something that's happening in my heart, right? The, the, the things that I choose to do externally are a natural result of what's happening internally. But I can make those external things happen without the internal stuff happening. So if my ministry is focused upon the externals, telling people that the externals need to be right, I run the risk of creating a whole bunch of hypocrites. A whole bunch of people that can look great on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones, and that is exactly what Jesus called the Pharisees. When we major on the minors, see, Jesus came and said, <laughs> you're a bunch of whited sepulchers. White on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And then he said, seek unto, rebalance is what he called them to do. Seek unto the things of the Lord. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. Get the inside right. And then the, the, the fruit will be born of that, right? These things can become major distractions through study as we strive about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers from, from sound doctrine. Number three, be careful about reading between the lines. This is perhaps the most insidious of these three warnings. When our study consists of reading into the text rather than reading out of the text. I'll go back to the account of the flood for a moment. I had a good number of very fun conversations speculating about the pre-flood days, pre-Diluvian days. But if what I take out of my study of Genesis 8 through 11, if when I read Genesis 8 through 11 about Noah and the flood and the results of that flood in the Tower of Babel, if I take out of that some element of, of, of lost city of Atlantis, Nephilim, uh, God-man hybrids, Titans, Greek mythology, if that's what I pull out of that passage, I've missed it, right? Now, all that's interesting. Some of those things might have some sort of interesting bearing on speculation and intellectual curiosity. But if I don't take out of the Genesis 8 through 11 that there was a human race that was utterly beset in sin, who was offered a chance by a gracious and loving God to get onto a boat to be saved from the judgment that is to come, and every man on earth, save one man and his sons and their wives, rejected that. And those eight got in the boat. And the Lord closed the door of that boat. And he judged the world in wrath for his sin, for its sin. And yet God showed mercy. If that's not what I take from that, that, that account, then I've missed the point of the account, right? All the other stuff might be interesting. and might, I might be able to connect the dots. Have a nice, have some fun discussions about that, but I've missed the point. I've read between the lines at the expense of the lines. Because what the lines tell me is that there is a God who hates sin. 
and that that God who hates sin will judge sin, but that God has created a means by which for me to be redeemed from that sin. And that if I will believe him, if I will acknowledge him, if I will, if I will acknowledge his way in faith, knowing that that judgment is coming, and I will, before the day of that judgment, get into that ark, who is Christ, then I will be saved from that judgment. But there's coming a day, and it's before the judgment begins, where that door is closed. And then the rains begin to fall. And then the judgment begins. And it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. I must do it while there is today. I must get on that boat. And if, I, if, if that's not what I've pulled from that account, then I've, I've, I've been reading between the lines rather than on the lines, because that's what the lines tell us. Paul spent much of his epistle correcting those who read between his lines. He spent Acts 15, Galatians, Romans 7, helping people understand that the believer does not need to submit himself to the law of Moses. That the day of the Lord is at hand. He spent time in 2 Thessalonians 2 telling them, the church that, that the day of the Lord had not yet come. 1 Corinthians 15, here in 2 Timothy 2, helping the believers know that their resurrection from the dead had not yet happened. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, telling people that, that Christ is superior to the angels. That the angels are not superior to him just because he was a, a man, right? 1 Timothy 6, 2 Peter 2, contending with the false teaching that gain is godliness. Health and wealth preaching was in existence even then. We could go on for slides with all of the, the contentions that Paul had to do against errors. And you know what's interesting about most of these errors? is that they were drawn from Paul's teachings. Peter acknowledged this in 2 Peter 3. Notice what Peter says here. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Peter acknowledges that people took Paul's words and they would twist them and they would confuse them and they would war against them. They would strive about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Peter says it was happening with Paul's writings. Paul says, we are risen with him. Hymenaeus and Philetus say, the resurrection's already passed. Paul, Paul uh, gives statements about the law and people take him and run with them. Paul has to correct. He has to overcorrect. He has to clarify. Let us be careful that we might study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Avoid the temptation to strive about words to no profit. And why does it matter so much? What's the allure of striving about words to no profit? We've spoken of it already in part. Well, first, see, the problem is, is that when I, when, when I study in this way, it takes the attention off of my spiritual deficiencies. When I can at once turn my attention away from the spiritual commands to love God with all my heart, to love my neighbor as myself, to love my enemy, 
to look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others, to resist, the, to resist being proud because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, to be angry and sin not, to be kind one to another, to forgive others as Christ has forgiven me. It's subversive Christian study takes my mind off of all of that and puts it on intellectual exercises, dates, times, timelines, um, debates. And in doing so, it distracts me. And I instead put my focus on these technical aspects. I use these nuances combined with various elements of human reasoning, and it takes the pressure off my conscience. Now, we don't walk through this world guilty. Jesus Christ bore all guilt on the cross. But we do need to walk through this world obedient. And if you have found yourself content, if, if, if you're a regular studier of the Word of God, and yet you have found yourself very content to walk contrary to the weightier matters of the law, then you need to reevaluate your study. If you can walk away from the Word of God on a regular basis and not be compelled to love God, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to, 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 to bless and serve the brethren, to share the gospel, then you're missing out on a huge, um, the central tenant of the scriptures. And this can happen if, if I've been subverted in my study. Second, it allows me to compare myself to others. Once, when at once I, I have my own spiritual agenda, when at once I find myself determining what's important to focus on, rather than allowing God's word to speak for itself, I create a perfect environment for me to focus upon the things which I can control, the things which are my strengths, and so place myself above others in my own reckoning. When at once the Bible becomes a tool for me to compare myself to others, rather than to compare myself to God, I've already missed the purpose. I've already been subverted. I've taken the virtues of the word of God and I've turned them into a vice by which to judge others. And on the authority of God's word, we who do such things will be judged accordingly. But nevertheless, the natural deceitful human heart is allured to this subversion by which I am able to live in direct contradiction to the word of God in the name of the word of God. And when I do act this way, what are the results? Well, at best, the results of subversive Christian study is ineffectiveness for Christ. At best. This is the mild end. I'm no longer actually being fed by the Spirit. I'm being fed by some manifestation of the flesh. And because of this, my growth stagnates. I become ineffective. I stop responding to the promptings of the Spirit. I fail to see the deceits of the devil because all he has to do is dress his lies up in clever religious or spiritual doublespeak, and I'm going to go for it because it sounds good. And this can lead to spiritual oppression, confusion, frustration, and I can become spiritually malnourished, which means I become weak because I'm not being sustained by God's grace in any meaningful way, and I'm subverted. And subversion is the least of my problems when I follow this path of, of Christian study. What we see in the, the, the verses that follow is at best ineffectiveness, at worst heresy unto apostasy. 
The potential to twist, redefine, and confuse the clarity and simplicity of God's word through academic reasoning, through mental gymnastics, leads to a com- uh, can lead to a collapse, either of truth or of authority. In the case of truth, these follow hook, line, and sinker into a trap of, and I don't use the word charismatic here in the spiritual sense, like, like the charismatic movement, but charismatic as in um, one who is, has a lot of charisma, okay? They fall into the trap of some charismatic religious leader, some figurehead who convinces them of these truths from an intellectual perspective, from a feelings-oriented perspective, justifying a lifestyle, encouraging teaching that keeps his hearers dependent upon his teaching, his interpretation, his reasoning, his justifications. And these are false teachers teaching false Doctrines leading people into a false sense of understanding and assurance. And so they fall into any number of heresies that have existed over the years. They walk themselves and perhaps lead loved ones into strange, confusing, unsustainable, and possibly even dangerous religious and spiritual ideas that inevitably lead to spiritual shipwreck. Maybe not in their generation. Maybe not in the generation that follows, but doctrines built upon the sinking sand of this world, of human reasoning, must either function in constant adaptation to to changing circumstances or will collapse under the weight of its own man-made reasoning. And that's the danger of heresy. That's the danger of, of going beyond truth. What about rejecting authority. This is apostasy. If the breakdown in the mind of the hearer is not a breakdown of truth, it may become a breakdown of authority, where they see the contradiction between subversive Christian study and the actual Bible, between what Christians are saying and doing and what the Bible says, perhaps because we've been majoring on the minors, perhaps because we've been reading between the lines. And a person opens the Bible and they say, You're not not doing what the Bible says. This isn't the Bible. And they say, well, if if that's what Christians are, then I'm done with you. I want no part of that. They see the contradictions, how often these theological and practical studies exist to subvert the essential teachings of the Bible. Soren Kierkegaard said, Christian scholarship exists to defend ourselves against the scriptures. (laughs) And when that happens, the only thing that people see is hypocrisy. Only contradiction. And what happens when they see hypocrisy? They reject, they walk away. Angry at God, thinking that he is the problem, that God has created this system of hypocrisy or that he doesn't even exist. Not realizing that it's not God, but it's the man who has been subverted in a study who claims to represent God and lives are made shipwreck on the shoals of poor teaching, ignorant study, subversive manipulation of the word of God to make it say things that it doesn't say in order to make myself feel better. It's been a hard message, I apologize for that. But this war of words is a big problem in Christianity today.
And as we close, I want to go back to that concept of the soldier. The soldier is trained and prepared to fight the battle that he is asked to fight. He is given the training necessary to do the job that his commander asks him to do. God has communicated to us his word and he has fitted us for the battle that is at hand. This is our manual. This is the field manual. He's given us what we need to know and he's given us these things in a manner that we can understand. And he's given us every resource at our disposal to understand it through his spirit. And as soldiers, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. But as a soldier, it's also important that we don't strive about words to no profit. We live in a culture, especially because of the YouTube, the, the access of YouTube, the amount of striving about words to no profit is pervasive in the church. I can't keep up with everything you're learning. It used to be that a pastor could come to church and know that generally speaking, unless he had some guy roving into town every once in a while, that he was going to be able to cultivate and protect his people's thinking. Now that could get out of balance and such naturally. Bad teacher means you have nowhere else to go. There's a lot of blessings to the internet as it relates to study and teaching, but I have no means by which to understand, know, cultivate, or protect as your shepherd from all the stuff that's out there. The only thing I can do is point the way. Be careful about striving to, about words to no profit. Be careful about the degree to which you're majoring on the minors rather than majoring on the majors. Be careful to the degree to which you're reading between the lines rather than reading what is on the lines. Don't, don't follow one of those rabbit trails into imbalance. And if you're there, come back. Come back. Realign, readjust. Readjust your study. Readjust your expectation. Readjust your thinking. Guard yourself against waging a war of words against the scriptures, against using study to do these things. Lest we be subverted, lest we subvert others, lest, God forbid, it ends up with profane, profane and vain thinking which works itself out in ungodliness or to overthrow the faith of some. You've seen it. You've seen people's faith be overthrown. You've seen the path that they've gone on that started out with this little tweaked way of thinking or struggling with hypocrisy or whatever it might be. You've seen it. You've watched it happen. If you've lived any manner of time in the Christian church, I know you've seen it. I'm saying that uh, confidently because I've seen it so many times I can't even count. You had to have seen it if you've, been inter if you've interacted in any way, shape, or form with other Christians, with, with people that are seeking. This is where that subversion oftentimes comes from. Striving about words to no profit but to the subversion of the hearers. Pray for those that are there. Help them as best you can, but certainly don't find yourself, don't, don't, don't follow that path yourself. Let us live the priorities that God has laid out. Let us trust the word of God as he presents it. That we might study, not for the sake of study, but to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That we may please him who hath chosen us to be a soldier. 
Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.